Guys, I'm excited about tonight. Um, uh, the topic at hand is, is really important. Uh, I want to go to prayer first, uh, so would you bow with me? Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you p- for preserving it thus far, and you're going to continue to preserve it, Lord. It's, it's never going anywhere. And Father, so in light of that, will we always go to it? Remember, it's a sufficient book. It was sufficient to save us, the gospel message, and it's sufficient to sanctify us. Uh, Thank you for your truth, Lord. Um, Thank you for everyone here gathered uh, to come tonight and to sing great songs uh, of worship and praise and and to hear your word, to hear your word preached, Lord. Bless your word, Lord. Bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to begin by asking you all a question. Don't worry, I don't ask a difficult question, simple question. Why are some Christians more mature than others? Why are are some Christians more mature than others? If you've been in the faith and around the church for any number of years, uh, there are just those people in the church who uh, seem to be really, really, really spiritual You know what people I'm talking about. They love to talk about God. They're always seeking to obey him and all that they do. Uh, There are individuals you really can't stand to be around because their very (laughs) essence just convicts you, right? (laughs) Um, But then on the other hand, you have those in the Christian faith, those in the church who are the polar opposite. Uh, They are really never on fire for God. They rarely seem to talk about him, to bring him up. And their lives tend to be marked by disobedience as opposed to obedience. So I ask uh, the question again, why is that? Why is that? Why do some Christians do better in their faith, in their walk than others? Is it because some look better than others? No. No. Though that's true, right? (laughs) Is it because some have just been given the strength by God to be more diligent uh, in their their faith? To that, I would also answer no. Is it because some Christians discipline themselves more than others? And if you were here this summer, you would know that the answer to that question uh, is yes. But what about a person's view of the Bible? Have you ever been told that based on your view of of this book, the book that you're holding, or maybe the phone that you have, the app, that based on your view of the Bible, that that is going to affect your life immensely? It's going to affect your life immensely. That it affects your Christian life drastically. Tonight, I hope to show you from our text Uh, That your view of the scriptures, again, it affects your life immensely. Your Christian walk, your beliefs about God's word affects the way you live. I want to give you one example of this before we jump into our passage. I, I want us to consider the Pharisees for a little while. The Pharisees. Why were the Pharisees' lives marked by disobedience and hypocrisy? Why? Jesus said to them in Matthew chapter 23, Um, He just goes to town on them in that chapter. I'm I'm sure some of you guys know it. Strong words. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the town, 
the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Strong words. Strong words by our Lord to the Pharisees. Why did those guys never seem to get it spiritually? They were always walking, if you read the Gospels, against the grain of God's truth. Why? Was it because their hearts were hard? Yeah. Was it because they were prideful individuals? Yeah. Was it because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God? Yes. All of those would suffice as answers to why they never got it spiritually. But could I submit to you one more? The Pharisees lived lives that were marked by disobedience and hypocrisy because of their low view of Scripture. They had a very low view of the Bible. And again, if you've read the Gospels, you know that. Uh, let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. You might be like, the Pharisees? No way. They knew the, the Scriptures like the back of their hands. Matthew chapter 15. Starting in verse 1, it reads, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat, he answered them. And, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father and his mother what you have been gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments Amen. What an indictment by our Lord to the Pharisees. He, he tells these religious leaders uh, that their traditions trumped the scriptures. Or to be more specific, their lives were marked, end of verse 9, by the teachings as doctrines, the commandments of men. The Pharisees had such a low view of the word of God. So much so that whenever they got a chance, they were adding their own interpretation and their own commandments to it. And I want us to stop here, and I want to pose a question to you all and to myself. What's your view of Scripture? What's your view of the Bible? The reason I ask that question is because you can see via the Pharisee's life, that the way they viewed this book affected their life. It affected their life. The way you view scripture, ladies and gentlemen, it affects your life. This is something that Jesus was well aware of, of course, which is why he told his disciples what he told them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, which is our passage for tonight. So go there. 
Go to Matthew chapter 5. We are going to consider verses 17 to 19. And you have a handout, so if you feel the need, follow along. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God, least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Upon coming to this section and studying this text, I asked myself this question. Why did Jesus decide to throw these four verses in his sermon? right before he began to to teach or or give an exposition of the law, which he begins to do in verse 21. Why here? And the answer to that question, uh, laid within what we have been talking about thus far, is a person's view of the scriptures. Jesus was well aware of the fact that a person's view of scripture was going to affect their life, or to narrow down that his disciples' view of the scriptures was going to affect their life. Jesus understood that. And before calling his, his disciples to, to live a life of obedience to the word of God, he had to make sure that they had the right view of the word of God. Jesus understood that that was foundational. It would have been pointless to make it clear to them, to explain it to them, the scriptures, if they didn't believe it was relevant. It would have been pointless to call them to obey the word of God if they didn't believe all of it in its entirety were the very words of God. And so Jesus, understanding this, in response to this, makes two very important issues clear to his disciples regarding himself and regarding the word of God. And those two things are this. He made clear to his disciples his relationship to the scriptures. And secondly, he made clear his view of the scriptures. He made clear to his disciples, one, his relationship to the scriptures, and then two, his view of the scriptures. Jesus' relation to the scriptures was a crucial point for him to hit on. As his followers, as his disciples, they needed to understand how Jesus himself related to the law because how he related to the law was how they were to relate to the law. And secondly, Jesus' view of the law or of the word of God was equally important Because whatever his view of the word of God was, his disciples were to have the same view. And so again, Jesus sets out to make those two issues abundantly clear to his disciples. His relation to the word of God and his view of the word of God. And so to hit on the first point, Jesus' relation to the word of God. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, and the law or the prophets, that was their Bible then, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, the works that he did and the words that he spoke went completely against the grain of what Israel's religious leaders did and said in that day. Israel's religious leaders in those days had taught that true worship uh, was merely external conformity, Jesus taught that true worship was at a heart level. 
The Pharisees and scribes' religious system taught that sitting in high places and having the best-looking clothes and having the most followers was the true mark of leadership. Jesus taught that being in the backstage and possessing a spirit of humility was the mark of godly leadership. Their leadership style was all about driving or forcing people to do what they wanted them to do, like a rancher driving cattle. Jesus' leadership style was all about gentleness and care, similar to that of a shepherd who gently leads his flock. For them, for Israel's religious leaders in that day, it was all about the spotlight. It was all about the spotlight. For Jesus, he could care less about the spotlight. For them, it was about doing things like the outside world did them, conforming to what the world thinks, lording it over people, controlling them. For Jesus, it was the exact opposite. You remember what he told his disciples? True leadership is marked by sacrificial service. They taught moralistic legalism. Christ taught a broken and contrite heart before God. Their circle was open to those who seemed to be, at least from an outsider's perspective, the most holy of holy. Jesus' circle consisted of the tax collectors and the sinners. What was their authority? It was themselves, as we saw in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus' authority was the Father and the Word of God. John chapter 5, the Son of Man can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. The Father was his authority. In the religious leaders of Israel day and Jesus day, in their kingdom, the first were first and the last were last. But in Christ's kingdom, he said this, he said, the first shall be last and the last, what? Shall be first. For them, it was all about holding on and keeping your own desires and wants. For Christ, it was about losing your life here on earth for the sake of gaining spiritual life. Guys, everything Jesus said and did was in complete contrast to what Israel's religious leaders taught and did in that day. Complete contrast. And consequential to that was the common perception from people about Jesus that he was, listen to this, anti-law, that he wasn't for the scriptures. The Pharisees and scribes were skilled at masquerading as individuals who loved and kept the word of God. And so when Christ came on the scene and did everything differently than they did, people began to think, what is this guy about? He couldn't be about the word of God because these guys are about the word of God. But before his disciples here in Matthew chapter five, Jesus had to set some things straight. He says, don't you for a second think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. Don't think that. In verse 17, uh, the Greek word for the word abolish is, is kataluo. Kataluo, which means to demolish something, to throw it down, to completely do away with it, to destroy it. Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the word of God. I didn't come to destroy the scriptures. But on the contrary, what does he say? End of verse 17. I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them. You have to set this straight, guys. 
The word for feel there at the end of verse 17 means here in this context to complete, to complete something. And the scriptures teaches that Jesus fulfilled or completed the Old Testament law, the Old Testament scriptures in three different ways. Three different ways is how he fulfilled the Old Testament. The first was his teaching. The first was his teaching. Jesus completed the Old Testament scriptures or fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures by bringing clarity to its meaning in his teaching. And I think that can be clearly seen in the following context of this verse, of of this passage here from 17 to 20. In verse 21, he starts to give an exposition of the law, if you will. He says, you have heard... You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is what it really means. This is what it really means. The same in verse 27 of chapter five, you have heard it said this way, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, here's what it really means. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, He does that from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way to chapter 5, verse 48. And what Jesus is doing is he's not giving a new meaning to the law. That's crucial. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not giving a new meaning to the law. He's giving clarity to the law. He's giving clarity to the law. I want you to understand something. Jesus never added a new meaning to the word of God. All he did was handle it faithfully. He handled it faithfully. And again, he fulfilled the scriptures first by giving clarity to its teaching. The scribes and Pharisees of his day were constantly mishandling the word of God. We saw that in Matthew chapter 15. They weren't teaching the scriptures. They were teaching their own rules. So Jesus came. He had to set some things straight. He had to give clarity to what the word of God said And that's one way he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. The second way Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, he completed the scriptures or again, fulfilled the scriptures through being perfectly obedient to its rules, perfectly obedient to his rules. And there are just so many passages when I was studying this, so many passages in the New Testament that affirm the fact that Christ perfectly kept the law. And he was thus sinless. Second Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin, no sin, sinless. You're in Matthew chapter 5. Flip with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 towards the end of your Bible. This is really just a phenomenal statement that the author of Hebrews make concerning Christ in verse 26. In regards to his perfection, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, speaking of Christ, the author writes, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, who was what? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus perfectly obeyed every last one of the Old Testament commandments, which had never been done. And hear this, it'll never be done again. Talking to the Pharisees in John chapter eight, verse 46, he says to them, which one of you convicts me of sin? Which one of you Pharisees 
convicts me of sin. They couldn't. And a tad bit earlier in John chapter 8, he said this. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Always. Jesus always did what the Father asked of him, and he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. And so we see here in Hebrews 7, and other scriptures attest to the fact that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament also, not just by teaching it and giving clarity to it, but obeying it perfectly. Obeying it perfectly. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 now. Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. I, I, I came to give clarity to its meaning. I, I came to obey it perfectly. In the last way, there's a third way, one more way that Jesus fulfilled or completed the scriptures. He was its consummation. He, he was its consummation. Jesus, and what I mean by that, he's the climax of the Old Testament scriptures, is he not? The Old Testament from the beginning of its very existence pointed to the long-awaited Messiah. He's coming. He's coming. And I'm not saying that Jesus is in every passage of the Old Testament because that's found nowhere in the Bible. But he is the climax. He, he's the crescendo of the Old Testament scriptures, if you will. Both Colossians 2 and Hebrews chapter 10 affirmed that the Old Testament was, was just a shadow of the things to come, but Christ was the substance. He was the substance. The ceremonial laws, they pointed to Christ. They found their fulfillment in Christ. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 25, on the road to Emmaus, talking to his disciples, it reads this. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, again, that's the Old Testament scriptures, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, concerning himself. Again, I want to clarify to you, guys, that Jesus wasn't saying there in Luke 24 and, and nowhere else in the New Testament to say Christ is in every passage of the Old Testament because that's found nowhere in the Bible. But listen to this. He is its climax. He's the climax. He's the consummation of the Old Testament the consummation. And so Christ completed the Old Testament. He fulfilled the word of God, like he says here in verse 17, in three ways, in his teaching, giving clarity to it in his teaching, in his life, perfect obedience to it, and in his person, in his being, being its consummation, being its consummation. And ladies and gentlemen, keeping the larger issue in the back of our minds as we Look at this text here in Matthew chapter 5. This was crucial for the disciples to understand. Why? Because the way that Christ, their leader, handled the word of God was how they too were to handle the word of God. The way Christ treated the scriptures is the way they should treat the scriptures. And so I would turn this text to us here in the room. How do you treat the word of God? Is it with care, having in the back of our minds that Jesus didn't come to do away with it, but that he came to fulfill it? Or do you treat the word of God with contempt? As if it was insignificant, as if it had no bearing on your life. Guys, that's a fitting question in light of what Jesus says here 
in verse 17. Christ makes it abundantly clear to his disciples that he didn't come to do away with the scriptures, but rather he came to complete it. He came to teach it. He came to live it. All of it in its entirety. And so moving on to our next point of clarification or of Jesus' clarification to his disciples. First, he makes clear to them his relationship to the scriptures. Then moving on in verse 18, he makes clear to them his view of the scriptures. And guys, this verse is just amazing. Verse 18. It's amazing. Let's read it first. We've got to read it first, right? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Amen? Amen. To sum up what Jesus is communicating here, it, it wouldn't suffice to say that he had a high view of Scripture. No. I, I don't think that would do justice to this passage. But rather, I would feel more comfortable with saying this. Jesus had the highest view of Scripture. The highest view of Scripture. This statement here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, is the most loftiest statement ever made about the Word of God in the history of mankind. And it would make sense that it came from Christ himself, the author of Scripture, right? Christ, in, in this simple verse, guys, but, but profound, he affirms four amazing truths concerning the Word of God. Four amazing truths concerning the Scriptures. And what were those truths? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus affirms that the scriptures are eternal. He affirms that the scriptures are inspired. He affirms that the scriptures are inerrant. And he affirms that the scriptures are sure. I just want to say amen. Amen. It's being tampered with today. The scriptures are eternal. The scriptures are inspired. The scriptures are inerrant. And the scriptures are sure. You guys are going to walk out of here. What'd you get from the message? The scriptures are inerrant. The scriptures are eternal. The scriptures are inspired. It's good. That's what I want you to get. Have you ever been asked the question, why do you believe the Bible to be the inerrant, the infallible, the inspired word of God? Have you ever been asked that question personally? If so, what was your answer? And the reason why I want to ask that question is because I want to give you the simplest answer, the five-letter answer. The Sunday school answer. What is it? Jesus. Jesus. That should be our answer, guys. The primary reason I and we should believe the, the very words of God to be that is because Jesus believed it to be the very words of God. The primary reason we ought to believe the Bible is without error is because Jesus believed the Bible was without error. The primary reason we should believe uh, that the word of God is everlasting it's because Jesus believed it was everlasting. The primary reason we should believe the word of God is trustworthy at every corner, at every little nook, at every little cranny, is because Jesus believed it to be trustworthy in a sure book. Ladies and gentlemen, the primary reason we believe the word of God is because, listen to this, profound, because God believes the word of God. Because God believes the word of God. The primary reason we believe in the scriptures and we affirm them is because our Lord here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 affirms them. But guys, I want to talk about those four things. 
those four things that Jesus affirms here. First, Jesus affirms the scriptures eternally. Look at verse 18, the beginning of it. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. The phrase here at the beginning of verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, was a proverbial statement in Jesus' day. And it communicated this, never, never. When Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, he's, communi he's communicating this, never will an iota, never will a dot pass away from the law, never will any of the scriptures be done away with. Guys in the room, <laughs> Have you ever asked a girl out on a date and uh, she responds with a clever little idiom? Uh, sure, I would love to do that um, when pigs fly. <laughs> um, and a lot of guys are like, yeah, I'm bringing back too many memories for you guys. I'm bringing back too many memories for you guys. It's, it's okay, it's okay, You're, you'll do all right. Or, or when you ask a girl out, did you... Have, did you ever hear this? Uh, yeah, buddy, we'll go on a date when uh, money begins to grow on trees. Or maybe this. Yeah, we'll go on a date, uh, but not in this lifetime, pal. <laughs> what was that gal communicating to you? <laughs> it ain't never going to happen, right? <laughs> it ain't never going to happen. And guys, similar to those modern idiomatic statements that express the impossibility of something, the impossibility of you going on that date. <laughs> in Jesus' day, if a person wanted to simply communicate it, the impossibility of something or to say never, they would say what Jesus said here at the beginning of verse 18. They would say, when heaven and earth pass away, when heaven and earth pass away, it will happen. Jesus is communicating to his disciples, the word of God will never go away. What a profound statement, right, guys? It's profound. The word of God is eternal, guys. It's eternal. Take great comfort in that. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 23 or 24, verse 34. Actually, go there. I want to take you there. That's, it's so good. I dare not deprive you of it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. This is an amazing statement. Jesus says... Out of the man's mouth himself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, what? Will not. Will not. Ain't going nowhere. Here in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says that, and he's talking about the earth, he's talking in very plain language, and, and, uh, and he might be pointing to an eschatological event. Second Peter 3 makes it clear that the earth, uh, that the, this earth, this heavens will pass away. And even in light of that, Jesus is saying, but, but even more importantly, this earth, this heaven will pass away. But listen to this. My words will never pass away. They will never perish. It will never stop existing. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to continue to prove this to you, that the scriptures are eternal. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22, Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Four, and then he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, another amazing passage. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers, the flowers falls, they'll fall, they'll go away, they'll perish. But the word of God, the word of the Lord remains forever. Isn't this beautiful? Peter confirms what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5. And Isaiah, through Peter, confirms what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5. The word of God is everlasting. Is it clear? Psalm 119, verse 52, the psalmist writes, Of old I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. That you have founded them forever. There are many people today who would say that the word of God is some ancient book and that it has no relevance to our day and age. And to that, we respond with this, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot, not an iota will pass from the law. We respond to Jesus' words. The scriptures have always been relevant. And listen to this, they will continue to always be relevant. It's funny because those who have doubted in the past, listen to this, the scriptures have outlived them. Those who have doubted it in the past, the scriptures have outlived them. And those who doubt it today, the scriptures will continue to outlive the skeptics. It's everlasting, everlasting. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. That's one thing Jesus affirms in this passage. The second thing Jesus affirms about the scriptures is its inspiration and its inerrancy in the middle of verse 18. It's inspiration and its inerrancy. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What's an iota? I'm sure you've wondered that. I just found out what it was. Two weeks ago, what's a dot? And some of your versions might say a jot or a tittle. And iota is the smallest consonant in the Hebrew alphabet. I'm studying Hebrew. I'm a first semester Hebrew student at the seminary, and so I just learned this. This was amazing. Uh, the, the iota or the jot in some of your versions, it's the smallest consonant in the Hebrew alphabet, and it's really called a yod, a yod, not yoda, yod. <laughs> And, and it looks like an apostrophe. It's as small as an apostrophe, guys. This is crazy. And some Hebrew scholars say that the Old Testament contains, listen to this, 66,000, over 66,000 yodes. Again, not 66,000 yodas. You're not going to find that in Scripture. <laughs> 66,000 yodes, little small apostrophes. And Jesus says about those 66,000 here, not one of them. Not one of them is going away. Not even a little apostrophe. What a statement, right? But even smaller than a yod is this in the Old Testament scriptures. It's a tittle. Or some of your versions say a dot. A dot. A tittle is the smallest uh, possible marking in the Hebrew text. It's what distinguishes one Hebrew letter 
uh, from another. It's, it's sort of like our English capital letter O and capital Q. What's the difference between a capital O and a capital Q? Just that little tail in the bottom right-hand corner, that little cute little tail just hanging down there. It's the only thing that's different. That's the only thing that's different. And you know what, guys? That's what Jesus is talking about here. The smallest letter, the yod, the smallest marking, the tittle, the bottom, again, similar to the little tail, the bottom of the cue. Jesus says it ain't going nowhere. I think, I think the Nasby, if you got a Nasby, you're saying hooray. I think it translated perfectly. It gets at what Jesus is saying. He says in the Nasby, translated this way, not the smallest letter nor the smallest stroke of the letter will pass away. Not the smallest letter nor the smallest stroke of a letter will pass away. Jesus is saying that all the yodes, all the little tittles will stand forever. This verse just screams inspiration. It screams inerrancy. Inspiration, for those of you who don't know what that means, it says that God superintended all of the human authors to write down the scriptures. And inerrancy, inerrancy says that the scriptures are without any errors in its original autographs. And Jesus says here that God directed the authors, he superintended the authors, not just on a conceptual level, not the concepts of scripture, but even down to the very letters, down to the very strokes of the letters. Ladies and gentlemen, the word of, of God is inspired, listen to this, at a microscopic level. Microscopic level. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all scripture is what? Inspired by God. All scripture is God-breathed. It's a product of God's breath. Just like the words I'm speaking here are a product of my breath. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, I actually want you to go there. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. The scriptures are inspired, guys, down to the smallest detail. 2 Peter 1 verse, we'll pick up in verse 19. Peter writes, and when the prophetic word is more fully confirmed, he just gave a uh, uh, an explanation of how he saw Christ's transfiguration, how the word of God confirms that. And in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the, di until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, here's the reason. Here's the reason why you should pay careful attention to the scriptures. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No one's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God moved the authors of the Old Testament, and he moved the authors of the New Testament down to the, <clears throat> to the microscopic detail. Just a little stroke of the letter. Why do I believe in the inspiration of the word of God? Well, because God believes in the inspiration of the word of God. Because Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 5, 
verse 18. He affirms the inspiration of the word of God. I want you to go back there now. And again, I said the middle of verse 18 talks about inspiration and inerrancy. And, and really, guys, in, inerrancy just follows. If, if all of Scripture was, was written by God down to the smallest detail, of course we have an inerrant text, right? Titus 1 says God can't lie. Deuteronomy 42 or 34 says that he's right about everything. Psalm 139 says he knows everything. Therefore, if this God is the author of Scripture, down to the smallest letter, down to the smallest stroke of the letter, then of course it's completely without error. What an amazing truth. It's inerrant too. It's inerrant because the God who wrote it, the God who superintended the authors to pin it down, because he's without error. When it comes to scientific issues, listen to you. I want you to listen up to this, guys, because you're at MSU. When it comes to scientific issues, the word of God has it right. When it comes to social issues, the word of God has it right. When it comes to justice issues, the word of God has it right. When it comes to spiritual issues, the word of God has it right. Amen? The scripture is always in the right. Always in the right. Because its author is always in the right. So guys, we see from verse 18, Jesus affirms its eternality. He, he affirms its, its inspiration and, and its in, inerrancy. And then lastly, he affirms its surety, its trustworthiness. End of verse 18. He says, not a iota, not a jot, not a dot, not a tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. And sure, if we have an inspired text and an errant text, it follows that the scriptures are sure. But Jesus goes on to say it specifically at the end of verse 18. He said all of it's going to be accomplished. All of it. What the word of God says will happen, make no mistake, it'll happen. It's been doing that ever since its inception. And not you, nor I, nor any MSU professor, nor any towering intellect of our society, intellectual of our society, is going to do away with that. It's going to stop the scriptures from happening. What God says will happen will indeed come to pass. Jesus said so himself. So ladies and gentlemen, you see why I got excited about this verse, right? Can you see it now? Jesus had such a high view of the word of God. He believed in its eternality. He believed in its inspiration. He, he believed in its inerrancy. He believed in its surety. Do you? Do you? What's the application for us believers coming off of verse 17 and verse 18? Or maybe better put, I guess, when we're looking at the context, what was our Lord trying to get his disciples to do in explaining to them and making clear to them his relation to the law and his view of the word of God? And I believe the answer is really in verse 19. We don't have to guess. Verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes 
one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He'll be called great. And guys, according to this verse, there are really two things Jesus wants his disciples to understand and thereby want us to understand coming off of verse 17 and verse 18. These two things, these two applications. One, God takes seriously how we handle his words. It matters to him much how you handle his word. It, it, it matters to him much how Deontay handles his word. First application. And the second application is this. Our view of the scriptures, going back to the very beginning, will affect our obedience to his word, to our lives. And so the first application, God takes serious how we handle his word. I don't know if you know this as a Christian, but the way in which you treat God's word is really the way in which he will treat you in his coming eternal kingdom. To those of us who would treat any bit of his law, any bit of his word as if it were not important or irrelevant, whether by word or listen to this, or by deed, Jesus says here God is going to treat them insignificant in return. He's going to treat them as the least in the kingdom of God. Commenting on this verse, our very own Pastor Brian, who's our senior pastor here at Grace, he, he writes this. He says, the words of this book are not merely the words of men. This is the word of God. It is to be taken seriously. We are not to break its commandments, and certainly we should not teach people to do so. On the contrary, we are to obey its commandments and teach others to do the same. Those who break the word of God and encourage others to do the same are seen to be least in the kingdom. And he continues, sadly, there are people like that in the family of God. There are those who don't take the word of God seriously, and they sometimes even tell others not to take the word so seriously. Beloved, beloved, when, when Pastor Brian says beloved, we better listen up, right? Beloved, that's not the kind of people you want to admire in life. It's not the kind of people you want to admire in life. As a Christian, if we choose to dishonor the word of God, Jesus says God will turn right back around and dishonor you in his kingdom. And this, of course, makes sense, right? Coming off of verse 18, Jesus' view of the scriptures, he had the highest view of the word of God. And, and would we suspect, would, would I suspect that if I would consider it insignificant, that he wouldn't turn right back around and, and consider me insignificant? He will not hold those in high esteem who don't hold his word in high esteem. Absolutely not. But on the contrary, if we as believers respect and honor the word of God in our teaching and through our lives, Christ will in return honor us in his coming earthly kingdom. We'll be considered great. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we understand that we must understand God takes seriously how you handle his word. Seriously. So much so that when you get to the earthly kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish his earthly kingdom. You're going to be called great if you take heed to his commands and teach others to do so. But if not, if not, he's going to call you least. Do you want to be called least by God? I sure don't. I sure don't. 
But the second application, first application, it's serious in God's eyes how you handle his word. But second application that I think Jesus is communicating in light of verse 19 is that there's a correlation between the way you view the scriptures and your obedience to them. I'll say that again. There's a correlation between your view of the word of God and your obedience to it. And your obedience. Our view of scriptures affects our obedience. And to put it as plainly as possible, I put it on your papers, a high view of scripture, a Jesus-like view of scripture drives a person to be obedient in its commands. And a low view of scripture drives a person to disobedience. Drives a person to disobedience. Guys, I, I hope it's a prayer for my life coming off of this passage, this wonderful passage that I would teach and obey all that the word of God commands. And I pray the same for you. Guys, we should have Jesus' view of scripture, his high view, his lofty view of the word of God. It's eternal. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's sure. It's going to happen. Take courage in that. You're on the right team. You're on the right team. But also, guys, handle his word with care because it matters much to him. It matters much to him. Let's close in prayer. I mean, Lord, thank you for that passage. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word so that we may do all that it commands, Lord. Oh, God, it's, it's a prayer of mine for myself. You know that, Lord, above, above all. For myself, that I would have a high view of Scripture similar to that of Jesus. Lord, but I want to pray for, for, for my brothers and my sisters in the faith out there, Lord, that they too, based on Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, 18, and 19, God, that they would have a high view of Scripture, that they would understand Jesus' relationship to it, and, Lord, that that would cause us to be obedient to it in every way, shape, and form. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We can't do this on our own, Father. Help us to be obedient to the scriptures. And, again, help us to do or to tell others to do the same. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, exhorting them, commanding them to do, to do all that I have taught you. Lord, we would do well to take heed to that, to Jesus' word. They'll help us with that, to obey it again, Lord, and also to teach others to obey it, like Jesus told us to do. Father, again, I just want to say thank you for the everlasting scriptures. It's in your son's name we pray. We pray. Amen.